Isaiah chapter 40, beginning at verse 15. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted before him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will rot, will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. Do keep your Bibles open <clears throat> at Isaiah 40, and we'll pray for a moment. Almighty God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. <clears throat> when Martin Luther was writing a reply to the great humanist scholar Erasmus, he summed up the difference between Erasmus's teaching and his own in these words. He said, Sir, your thoughts of God are too small. The prophet Isaiah is describing one who brings a good news message to those who are struggling with the apparent absence of God, to those who are struggling with the distance between God and humanity, and with those who are very well aware of the problem, the issue that separates God from humanity, the issue that we call the sin issue. If you don't have any of those problems this morning, then perhaps you have nothing to learn. But for those who are here who struggle with Christian faith, whether you struggle with the Bible's narrative regarding human origins or you struggle with the Bible's ethics and morality or you wrestle with the claims of the Bible regarding the centrality of Jesus Christ as the only Savior of the world, your problem is likely that your thoughts of God are too small. If your thoughts of God are not the thoughts of God as revealed in Scripture, then what you believe in, if you believe at all, is something other than the God who is there. Therefore, you are in fact thinking and acting as a practical atheist. And what Isaiah is proposing in this chapter is an antidote to practical atheism, that is not believing in God at all or believing in 
a so-called God that isn't the God who's revealed himself in Scripture, his proposal as the antidote to practical atheism is a robust view of the God who has revealed himself in Scripture. You see this in verse 15 as he talks about God's immensity. We live in a world in which we are increasingly becoming aware of the immensity of the earth itself. We can often feel as individuals like little cogs in a great geopolitical machine. And even nations can feel that they themselves are no longer able to determine their own destiny. In fact, I think part, part of the problem we are facing as a great empire, the United States, is that we are being made, perhaps we are being forced into a position where we feel as if our own national identity and destiny is no longer in our hands, but is at the mercy of our other powers and influences around the world. We, whether nationally or individually, recognize that so far our economies and communications all interwoven in our present world, that actually we make very little difference at all. But my question is, can individual nations or global powers hinder the outworking of God's purposes and plans? Can nations or powers or the world system, either separately or together, in union with each other, destroy or dilute the work of God in the world? Listen, will you, to God's answer to that question. The nations, the great power blocks of the world, the world system in which we find ourselves immersed from day to day, the nations, he says, are inconsequential. Look at verse 15. Behold, he says, look carefully and see. Consider as I bring this to your attention. And you can see there's a note of sarcasm here. Because what is he bringing our attention to? Well, they are the nations. The nations are the great power players of the ancient and modern world. They regard themselves as pretty impressive, as unmissable. You can't overlook them. They have power. They have prestige. They have military and economic might. They are famous for their accomplishment. In Isaiah's day, there was Assyria and Egypt, and soon there would be Babylon, and these were great nations. They had huge armies. They had sufficient, significant resources. And today there is this global economy. Today there is this global movement of men and women and, and ideas and, and influence. And the temptation is to be in awe of all these things, to be cowed before these things, to tremble at the world as we see it. And so here is God through His prophet saying, Behold, pay attention, take another look at the thing that you are afraid of, at this great thing that you are overwhelmed by, that you are trembling about. Consider Consider this world system. Consider it as God considers it. See it as God sees it. Behold, these powers, these nations, this system is like a drop from the bucket. Imagine the woman going to the well 
I say women because they're stronger than men and they can lift the bucket out of the well. She puts the bucket into the well, she pulls it up again and off she goes and she doesn't notice. She doesn't notice that drop of water that falls back into the well, says God. The nations are like a drop from a bucket and the coastlands, he says, are like them. They are nothing. They're like fine dust. They are like an atom is perhaps the best translation. They are like an atom. They are so small, so insignificant, so inconsequential to God compared to God. Now, here's what God wants us to see. Here is little Israel as a nation state, but also as a church surrounded by other great nations that are also uh, churches in their own right, following other gods and other ideas. And here is the people of God surrounded by cultures and a culture that is an alternative culture to the culture of those who love and follow God. And those nations represent powers and ideas and agendas and opinions that are hostile to the Word of God and the church of God. And what the prophet is saying and what God is saying to us is here we are this morning in this church building or watching from wherever you're watching in your home. Here we are surrounded by a world system that is vast and great. And yet, compared to God, it is inconsequential. At the end of the day when the story is told, they will have nothing to contribute to the unfolding story. God writes the story. All they do is come onto the stage and read their lines and then leave the stage. Inconsequential. And secondly, he says, the nations are inadequate. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. Umbreit, the German theologian, says this is a magnificent picture. Here is nature as a temple. Here is Lebanon with great Mount Lebanon, visible from Israel, dominating that part of the Middle East as, as the altar. Here are the great forests of Lebanon from that period, providing the fuel for the fire. Here is Lebanon's vast cattle brought to sacrifice on the altar. It's a picture of the whole world from the perspective of little Israel looking northward. It's a perspective of everything that is grand and great in the natural world. It's a, it's a picture of that, those vast forests. They had no, hardly any trees. That's where they looked for their forests. That's where they needed wood in order to burn the sacrifices on their altar. God is saying you think of the highest mountain you can think of and use it as an altar. You think of as many trees as you can imagine and use them for fuel. You think of as many cattle as you can conceive and offer them in sacrifice, and none of it would be enough. None of it would serve God. None of it would make any difference to God. Because if the whole world turned to the true God tomorrow, there, was, there is no way that the earth could offer the worship that God deserves. In other words, God does not need us. 
He does not need us. He is not enriched by anything that we give Him, and He is not diminished by anything we hold back from Him. He is not dependent or contingent on anything else in all the universe. The nations are inadequate when it comes to the worship of God. And we should be careful about the language we use when we suggest that by offering something to God, a skill or a work or, or whatever, that somehow we are giving God something that He needs. There is nothing that He needs. The nations are inadequate. And the nations are impotent. Look at verse 17. All the nations, the world system as we know it, is as nothing before Him. That is in comparison to God. That's the bottom line. Just in case you didn't get the poetic language in verses 15 and 16, verse 17 is a plain statement. All these nations, these power blocks, the world system is as nothing. The Hebrew means that which is not, that which does not exist. They are non-existent. They are less than nothing. They are non-entities. They are emptiness, totally empty of meaning and purpose. They are zero. Everything around us has a minus quantity when it comes to comparing it to God, is what the prophet is telling us. Now, that does not mean that God doesn't care for what He's made. He does. He loves everything that He has made. And it doesn't mean that God doesn't care for you. He does care for you. But do you see the language? Is the comparison. If you put these things, everything you can imagine, everything you can imagine against God, you find there is no compar comparison. If you can imagine the universe as we know it, and imagine this speck of dust at the edge of the pulpit, which the sections are not responsible for. That's our universe and less to God. There is nowhere where God isn't. The universe is a created thing that He has made specifically for us to inhabit and explore and expand in from all eternity. But God is outside of creation, as we shall see. All the nations are as nothing before Him. There is a radical discontinuity between the being of God and everything else. He is on a different plane of existence. And what that does for us this morning is it puts everything in perspective. It puts everything in its place. Whatever powers there are, they only operate by His permission. The world delights to frighten us, doesn't it, with its power, with its knowledge, with its technical advances, with its available cash. But in the end, they're nothing. Behold your God. This goes for everything the nations have, everything the world produces, all the skills and techniques and money and energy and power that the world has to offer. Consider the immensity of God. Secondly, consider the uniqueness of God. Look at verse 18. In verse 18, the prophet addresses a question to everybody, every human being, not just to God's people, but to everybody in the human race. He uses a formula there that he will use again in verse 25. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with Him? 
Now remember, the prophet is addressing people who have trouble believing God. They have trouble believing the message, the good news message about God, which he has just been preaching. The people he's writing to have doubts. They are stumbling over the word of God. They're asking the question, how can these things be? So if you're in church and you're asking about the gospel, how can the good news about Jesus Christ be? How can it work? How does it work for me? How can this possibly be good news to me? Or if you're asking about the nature of the universe and you're struggling with grasping in your mind that the universe was made by an infinite personal God, here is your real issue. Your real issue is that you struggle because you do not understand the nature of God. You have wrong ideas about God, and God is challenging these ideas. And He challenges them in terms of the idolatry of the times. In the Old Testament, God's people were surrounded by nations, people who were constantly trying to press them into their mold, constantly trying to make the people of God like them. They had idols. The people of God did not have an idol. And so the world outside was constantly trying to tease the people of God to think the way they thought and to have idols as they had. What happens in these idolatrous nations is this, that they believed that the presence and the power of their God, lowercase God, could be caught, could be grasped, and could be transferred to a physical image of one kind or another. And what the prophet is doing here, what God is saying to us through this prophet is that the God who is there, the presence of the God who is there, can never be localized, can never be captured or transferred unto anything lesser than Himself. That's what it's saying. He is denying the very idea that any part of God's being or presence can be harnessed and possessed by a created object and then transferred onto another created object. And he's doing this by underlining the fact that every part of creation is the possession of God. As we read in Exodus chapter 19 and verse 5, all the earth is mine, says the Lord. All the earth is mine. So you see, what is distinctive about this verse 25 and following is that we're being told not only that God is above creation, He's told us that earlier about the majesty of God. God is above us, and we bow before Him. But He's also saying that God is apart from us. He is apart from us. That's what Jesus was saying, or something of what Jesus was saying in John chapter 4 when He says, God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. God cannot be understood or compared to anything that He has made. Now, you say to me, but isn't it true to say, Liam, that, that man is made in the image of God? And that's absolutely right. Man 
is made in the image of God. There are some things in humanity that are like some things that you see in God. We humans think and we speak and we love and we reason and we can be wise sometimes and, and so on. And those are things that you see in God. You see them perfectly in God, but you see them to some degree in us. We can be compared to God, but God can never be compared to us, ever. That's what he's saying. Read again verse 18. What is he saying? To whom will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with God? You see, in Scripture, we have a revelation not only about who God is and what God is, but also how God ought to be thought of and worshipped. And that's very carefully drawn out in the language and the words and the thought processes and the narrative that we find in Scripture. It's very important because He's forbidden us from having any image of Himself. And that image he's talking about in the language of J.I. Packer is both a mental image as well as a material image of God. We are neither to think wrongly of Him, nor are we to make something that misrepresents Him, because in doing both of those things, we have committed idolatry. We take away, to use John Calvin's language. Whenever we imagine, um, imagine a created image in connection to the deity, we are distracted from God's true spiritual being. God is spirit. Remember Paul confronting the philosophers of his day in, in Acts chapter 17, and he says this, with reference to the creation of Adam and the unity of the human race descended from Adam, he says this, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think, to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination, imagination of man. Now, that's important that we understand that as we begin to talk about idolatry, and idolatry will come up again and again in the, the chapters that succeed. Here's the flow of the argument. If God is absolutely alone in His creation, He created, and in the maintenance of the universe, He upholds creation, and if all the power players in the world that we can think of, however big they are, are nothing to Him, they evaporate in comparison to Him. How then is it possible to represent God or to imagine God? To whom then will you liken God? In the Hebrew, that word for God is the word El. It is the, not the letter, letter L, E-L in English. It's the name for the transcendent, different, separated 
glorious God. It speaks of His total dominion, His absolute deity, His solitary glory, His inscrutable purposes. It is God separated from absolutely everything else. He is the great and the high God. He is beyond the heavens. He's transcendent. He, he, he goes beyond everything. He is bigger than anything we can imagine. Therefore, we cannot make an image of Him, and we cannot imagine Him. And, the, and you notice the, the language as the prophet goes on in verse 19. His incredulous language, an idol. He wants you to sneer. He's being bitingly sarcastic here. An idol. What can I say, says the prophet? If like begets like, it is inconceivable that a creature should recreate the Creator or that a human nature should grasp, capture, or recreate the divine nature. Let me get you to look at that again. What does Paul say in, in Acts 17? Let me read it to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He's talking about worship here, by the way. We do not serve God in worship. There is nothing we have to give to God. He serves us. He serves, serves us with His Word that feeds us, with His bread and wine that sustain us. All we do in reply is use His words and sing them back to Him in praise and prayer. And anything we do in worship, we only do it because He commanded us to do those things. There is nothing we give to Him. Let me read it to you again. The Lord of heaven and earth is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. That's not what people going to church want to hear this morning in many parts of the world. They feel that by coming, they're somehow doing God a favor, or they're making him higher with their praises. You know, if we, we sing louder and with more noise, then we'll make God higher. No, you won't. It'll be ridiculous. You can't make God any higher. All you can do is reach after His highness. Acknowledge His highness. Admire His, His highness and His beauty. And let Him serve you with salvation. These idols are mental as well as material. The idols of our day, maybe, are money, sex, and power at a kind of basic, guttural level. But ideas are idols too. Ideas are mental images. And whenever we devise a mental image of God or of the works of God, we are engaging in idolatry. You want an illustration? Let me give you an illustration. The world the nations, the equivalent to the nations in Isaiah's day, have an alternative explanation 
for how the world came into being. In their explanation, God is absent. They are atheistic in their explanation of the way in which the world came into being. Now, we can't clap ourselves in the back and think, well, how awful the world is, because the church has from time to time, or people in the church has, have from time to time developed that idea and transferred it as every bit as much as Israel took the gods of the nations and baptized them with the worship of Yahweh so that they worshiped Yahweh along with the idols of the nations, so in the Christian church. I'm talking about theistic evolution. They take the ideas, the human construct of evolution, they baptize it with theism, and they pass it off as a description of origins that completely contradicts what has been revealed in Scripture. That is a form of idolatry. I don't hesitate to say that. Whenever, whenever we take a work of God and we recast it, why do we recast it? Nobody would have thought of recasting it unless it was uncomfortable to hold on to it, unless there was a cross to bear for holding on to the Bible's narrative of origins. Why are we recasting it? We are recasting it to make it acceptable to the nations, to the world, to the culture. We are forgetting that the culture, the culture's reason, the culture's way of looking at things is a fallen way of looking at things. It has fallen into sin. It is not seeing clearly. It will not see what is patent because it has its own agenda, which is to introduce its idolatry, its Canaanite gods, and to marry it to the God of Israel. We have to say that when the world makes its view of origins the explanation of what is, or the world presents its politics, for example, as being the means of bringing about a utopia, or where the world elevates its expert and ascribes to him infallibility, we are seeing idolatry confronting the church. Alec Mateer puts it like this, idols may look magnificent, they may be venerable and mysterious, they may excite a sense of awe, but there is nothing there. There is nothing there. No ability but human ability. No innate resources but those of the earth. And in the end, what idolatry wants to do, you see, is to control God. It wants to control God. There is something uncontrollable about the God of the Bible. He blows away all of our conceptions. He insists that if you don't understand how he did something, that you just believe it and wait for him to explain it to you when you see him. 
He will not have you elevate your speculations to the level of divine revelation. He will not have it. So we're confronted with idolatry. A.W. Tozer wrote this, The essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts of God that are unworthy of Him. So think about it. What have you thought when you were crippled with fear, when you were overwhelmed with guilt, when you were distracted with stress, when you were confronted with suffering, when you were beset with questions, when you found yourself put on the spot in a laboratory somewhere or in a classroom somewhere with an idea that is alien to that which has been revealed in Scripture? What did you think of God? Psalm 115 gives the ultimate analysis. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. Their idols are silver and gold and the work of human hands. And the psalmist goes on to say, you know how, you know how good they are for you? You know how great they are, really? This is how great they are. They have mouths and they don't speak, eyes and they don't see, ears and they don't hear, noses and they don't smell, hands but they don't feel, feet and they don't walk. They can't make a sound in their throat. And those who make them become like them. Those who make them become like them. That's the sad thing. I've used origins as my major illustration of this this morning for this simple reason. That once you capitulate there, do you know where you're going from there? Once you make that fundamental compromise with the world system right there, there is ultimately nowhere will you will not compromise down the road. You, you cannot, you've, you've lost the battle. You've lost the battle because if that revelation of God is untrue, if that revelation of God is unreal, if that is flexible, if that is, is malleable, moldable, changeable in your hands, then anything else is. Now, you may not want to hear that this morning, but my problem is, as your problem, is that we're going to stand before Almighty God one day, and I'm going to be responsible for what I've taught you from the Bible. It has to come from Scripture. And you're going to be responsible for what you hear from Scripture, responsible for what you imagine in your mind about God, and any idolatry that may creep into your mind as you try to marry the spirit of the age to the spirit of God as the Canaanites did. And let me say this about idols. An idol is a little God you have to carry. The Lord God is a great God who will carry you. Well, so much for God's uniqueness. What about His sovereignty? In his sovereignty, I'd like him to suspend time right at this moment so that I could finish. He is sovereign. Let's very quickly look at verse 22, 21, 22. God is the Lord over nature. He is not part of the world. He is over it. Do you not know, he says, do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? 
Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? What's he saying there? He's using sarcasm, isn't he? He's using irony. He's saying it's observable. You can see it. It's observable to the simplest person, to the unbeliever, even the pagan. Creation is a proof and manifestation of God. Paul says the same thing. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things which have been made so that they are without excuse. I remember reading a book by the great Professor Hawkins. And he, he, he's not a believer, but he is a great descriptor, describer of the, the universe in which we live. You can't help but enjoy his books. If he describes what we find and what we see in the universe around us, you'd be, you'd be an absolute Philistine or Philistine even if you didn't appreciate what he writes. And uh, there's a little place in one of those books that I thought was very interesting. He's describing the universe and the way the universe works. And he observes that, that much of the way in which the universe works has a knock-on effect that makes life on our little planet possible. And his throwaway line is simply this. You would almost think that the universe knew that we were coming. But here's this man who denies, you see, that there's purpose and planning in the universe. But the, as he observes the universe, he can't help himself. Right there in that little statement, there is a glimpse of what Paul has been saying. They are without excuse. It is plain. They may, interestingly, in Romans chapter 1, what is the knowledge that they suppress? It is the knowledge of God, and the knowledge of God is Creator that people suppress. They have to push it down. They have to press it down hard. They have to lean on it to get it down under, because it's there, built into the human frame. And it's part of the revelation of God. And the tragedy of humanity that the God of this age has blinded the minds of those who don't believe the gospel. What does he say? He says, God sits on the throne. Look at this. <clears throat> he who sits like a king, that is, on a throne above the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. All the little people who must run around are like squeaky little creatures that jump up and down. That's you and me, I suppose. Imagine how they are, how we are to God. Jim Packer says, the world dwarfs us, but God dwarfs the world. What does he do? He stretches out the heavens. That is, the universe, like a curtain or a canopy, spreads it like a tent to dwell in. And the world is, is like his footstool where he puts his feet up. That's the idea, the notion. Behold your God. And the more we know about our planet, the more we know about our galaxy, the more we know about these hundreds of millions of galaxies, the sheer enormity of space, the more we know of that, the more we are learning about what? The more we are learning about the infinitude of God. 
the more we are learning that in his being, he is beyond all measure. He is immeasurable in his being. And that therefore there is, there is nothing too hard for him to do. We have the problem because we're looking at it from the perspective of our little grasshopper insight into the universe. We cannot trust our own judgment. We cannot trust our own observation. We were not there. You remember God comes to Job and he says, were you there when I put the stars in space? No, you weren't, is the answer. And that's meant to humble us. It's meant to bring us to the dust. Men and women, we are meant to be humbled under the mighty hand of God when we read this. We are meant to be made low. You see what he goes on to say, verse 23, 24. He brings the princes to nothing, the rulers of the earth, our emptiness, he says. These are the great people, the people of influence, the politicians, the dictators, the celebrities, the leaders of business and interest and science and technology, the Sennacheribs and Nebuchadnezzars and Napoleons and Hitlers and Aristotles and Russos and Mao Zedongs and Darwins and the Hawkins of this world. These are the influential and the impressive and the intimidating. And they are, some of them, really great people. Great people. And they've contributed much to our quality of life. Of course they have. But they come and they have their day. They strut and fret their hour upon the stage. They have their fame when they're in the news during their lifetime. And they get the praise and attention and the obituary that they never get to hear or read. And their name may enter the history books, but they don't get to see it. You see what it says? It brings princes to nothing and the rulers of this earth as emptiness. And you have that amazing description of them. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when He blows upon them, and they wither. And the tempest carries them away. There is your picture of the great of this world. And in the words of the Anglican prayer book, only God is the only ruler of princes. And I urge you to consider this when we speak about this. That little baby thing that was born of Mary, that young man who was beaten and crucified on the cross, that transformed, resurrected Christ existed as the second person of the Holy Trinity before there was anything else. Before there were angels, before there was creation, before there was a universe, before there was anything else. Listen to what it says in Colossians. By Him, Christ, all things were created in heaven, that is in the sky, the universe, and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created by Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. 
And this morning I urge you to bring all your little thoughts, all your little pygmy ideas of what God might be and what God is, and to cast them down before the image of this God who has revealed himself in Scripture, to be the maker, the master, the manipulator of all things, your God and mine in Christ, that we amazingly are able to call our Father. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would please take your word this morning, that you would write it on our hearts, bring us to that place where we bow not only our knee, but our mind and our will and our very lives before you to acknowledge your majesty. We pray in Jesus' strong name. Amen.